Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. What are you getting so crazy about? It's just music. Lou Reed never sold albums like the Beatles or concert tickets like the Stones, but his influence was just as vast, if not more. I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. We remember the late punk poet Lou Reed, and we'll review a new album from agit rapper M.I.A. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions. Time now for some music news. That's Madonna with music. She is one of the richest people in the world. We know that already. Forbes magazine is confirming it. She is the world's highest paid music artist of 2013. $125 million. The MDNA tour, the merchandise, the clothing line, the fragrance, making her by far the highest paid music artist of the year. In second place, Lady Gaga with $80 million, her rival in some quarters, far behind in, in revenue. Bon Jovi in third place, the top rock band of the year, $79 million. You know, it boggles my mind, Jim, that Bon Jovi <laughs> consistently is in this top 10 or top 20 list of the Forbes annual biggest earners in music. Right behind them, Toby Keith. This guy's got it right. You know, that $65 million, not only does he tour a lot, but he's got his own record label, his own restaurant chain, his own line of booze. We're starting to see this as a major trend for these artists in accruing income. Sean Diddy Combs did most of his $50 million income from a vodka deal, not from his musical revenue earnings. When's the last time he even made an album? (laughs) That's true. And at number five, we've got Coldplay with $64 million. Up to 
Listening to sound opinions and those insistent rhythms are from I'm Waiting for the Man. They get me every time, Greg, and I must have heard that song a million times. That is the Velvet Underground from their first album, and the founder of that band, Lou Reed, died on October 27th at the age of 71. I paid tribute to Lou Reed with the addition of Candy Says to the Desert Island Jukebox a couple of weeks ago, but both of us think that his influence over rock and roll in the last half century is as great, if not greater, than any other artist anyone could name. And I don't care if you're talking Beatles, Dylan, Rolling Stones, anybody. I know you agree. This is one of the few things that we agree to the level of intensity that we do about this. And I think that that for people who may not understand how deep that influence runs or why Lou Reed was as important and and is as important as he is, we wanted to kind of give a primer, to celebrate his music and to kind of explain it to people who don't know it. Yeah, Jim, I think it's important to realize that just look at the first four Velvet Underground albums that Lou Reed created with John Cale, Sterling Morrison, Maureen Tucker in the original incarnation of that band. The lineup changed for the last couple of records. But the music therein, you can look at that as a foundational element for basically anything that was called alternative rock, underground rock, punk rock, post-punk of the next 30, 40 years. So when I wrote that in my lead of the obituary in the Chicago Tribune, that the Velvets and Lou Reed were as influential as any of the 60s bands, including the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, there were a few people who were looking at me like, are you crazy? You can name entire movements of music that were based on a single Velvet Underground song. So if Lou Reed had just gone away after the Velvets had imploded, that would have been enough to make him a legendary artist. But he went on to have a 30, 40-year career after that as a solo artist. So we want to kind of encompass the full range of the work here. We can't possibly cover everything he's done, but we want to select five representative albums that sort of span his career. And we've got to begin with The Velvets, of course. We did cover The Velvet Underground and Nico, that first album, the debut album with the famous Warhol banana cover, when we did our 1967 show. Again, you know, everybody thinks Sgt. Pepper's most important album of 1967. The two of us argued that, no, that Velvet Underground record was the one that would, in time, stand as the most important album. So I want to start with White Light, White Heat in 1968, the second Velvet Underground album. Now, that first album had bits and pieces. Uh, it laid the blueprint for everything the band would do on the last three albums. Certainly, the noise rock of European Sun would point to White Light, White In January 1968, when this album came out, the Velvet Underground had broken with Andy Warhol as manager and producer. I mean, he didn't really do anything on the first album except sit in the studio. The album had not sold, not met expectations. The band was kind of on edge about whether they could even continue. And they went in the studio and they decided to record as quickly as possible, as live and in the moment. And White Light, White Heat is infamous for being uh, like 
you are in the room with the loudest band you have <laughs> ever heard, and every single one of the needles on the mixing console is as far to the red as they will go. <laughs> it sounds that way. And the sound was really influential. Lou Reed has said that he was listening to Cecil Taylor and Ornette Coleman, giants of the free jazz movement at the point where they were recording. And the sound is is extreme and unforgiving. John Cale was very, very proud of this record. He believed in the noisy experimentalism of the avant-garde classical world. This is a man who had played with Stockhausen, okay? So you have this high art and you have this punky, snotty love of I'm just going to be as loud and obnoxious as possible that was Reed coming together and making this unholy sound of songs such as Sister Ray recorded all 17 plus minutes of it in one take. Whip it on the gym, whip it on the gym, whip it on the gym, whip it on the gym. Said I couldn't hit it sideways. Oh, do it. And just like, just like Sister Ray said. And that just eruption of I heard her call my name. But there are also quiet moments. Here she comes now is a pretty beautiful little quiet contemplative pop song. But for the most part, it's remembered as the ultimate punk rock statement right down to that skull. It was a black skull on a black cover. Mm -hmm. What a statement. This is like right after the summer of love. (laughs) There's none of that with the Velvet Underground. I think this record is immortal. Certainly we have heard rock that's been noisier since, that has pushed the envelope further. Even Reed himself would later give us metal machine music. But the right combination of melody, music, mayhem, and intellectual content, I don't think really has ever gotten better in rock and roll. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and we're looking at the career of Lou Reed, the founding member of the Velvet Underground. Lou uh, died recently at the age of 71 leaving behind an incredible legacy. Jim, White Light, White Heat, that album was kind of a uh, a breaking point for the Velvet Underground in a way as well, because John Cale, I think his absolute peak 
as a member with the Velvets was, was Sister Ray. Yeah. That concept and that song and its live appearances would constantly mutate. It would change every time they played it. In fact, Lou would make up new lyrics often as they were as they were performing. And Kale said that's exactly what I wanted the Velvet Underground to be. This orchestrated noise chaos all around Lou, and he would be making up these incredible words. He said, I'd never worked with an artist like Lou Reed that could improvise stories so well in the moment. But it's clear that you can start to see the signs where these two guys aren't seeing eye to eye on White Light, White Heat. You know, Here She Comes Now is a song that I think, in retrospect, Hale would look at and say, you know, that's not really what I had in mind when I joined this band. And Lou Reed was clearly aiming for something a little bit more straight ahead in terms of the use of melody and the way he was using those chords to create these tuneful type of songs rather than the chaos of a white light, white heat. He would never get back to that kind of moment on the next two records, which were done without John Cale's participation. Cale and Reed parted ways, and a new uh, member was brought into the man, Doug Yule. A big part of that third record, which was much quieter, the self-titled Velvet Underground album. Yeah, well, he sang Candy Says, which I played as my Desert Island jukebox mm-hmm. pick from that third record. But you got to tell us about the fourth record. Yes, the fourth record, Loaded, came out in 1970. It was the final record that Lou Reed, in his Velvet Underground days, made with that band. And here was the album that, as Lou has said on a number of times, I left them an album of hits. Loaded and with hits. Loaded with hits. And they screwed it up. Uh, that, that was his opinion. In the summer of 1970, they played a lengthy residency at Max's Kansas City. It was the first time they'd played in New York for a number of years. They were about to celebrate this new deal with Atlantic Records. Ahmet Erdogan signed them to his label with great fanfare because uh, they had felt they had been abused in their previous uh, record deal with MGM. And now here's a, finally a record executive who really got them and was going to get behind them and market this record the way it should be. So whether that was part of uh, Reed's reasoning here or not, he did write a record chock full of songs that people to this day are learning and loving. I mean, these were anthems. These these were would-be, should-have-been hits that in their day did not become hits, in part because Lou Reed left the band. After that Max's Kansas City gig, the last one, he pulled a couple of band members aside and said, I'm leaving. I, I, I've had enough of this. And, and one of the reasons he gave was that uh, his relationship with the manager that he had brought in to replace Andy Warhol after the first record, this guy named Steve Sesnick, was constantly at odds with Reed. In fact, elevating Doug Ewell to a more prominent position within the band, saying, hey, you should be the face of the band. You should be singing more songs. You're a little bit more palatable, a little bit more of a marketable guy than this rough-edged Lou Reed character is. Well, you know, people would know the song Sweet Jane and the song Rock and Roll from Loaded. And baby, here we go. 
Reed played them, uh, you know, virtually at every show he ever played for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. You know, he was proud of those songs. But as far as I'm concerned, every track on that album, uh, you know, when he wrote the ones that Doug Yule was singing are, is great. You know, there's some lesser-known gems on there. Well, what's your favorite of the lesser-knowns? Well, I mean, there's a number of songs that Yule sings on this record. Who Loves the Sun, Lonesome Cowboy Bill, Oh Sweet Nothing. They're pretty good songs. The song that I love the most that Yule sings, though, is New Age. I think it's one of the oh, Lou, Lou Reed's greatest songs. And it's Reed would sing it track. sometimes live. He regrets not singing that song live on this record. Handing it over to Yule, whether it was his decision, Steve Sesnick's, Yule ends up singing on the record, but it, it is Lou Reed's song, and it is one of his greatest creations, one of the anthems on this record. And that's what he was writing, anthems. And what I really hear this record is, this is Lou's tribute to his boyhood past, this kid growing up, listening to that transistor radio, being blown away by the songs that he was hearing, basically saved his life. You know, her life was saved by rock and roll, as he sings in rock and roll. That's what it was like for him. I mean, this is a kid who was growing up pretty troubled, dealing with, you know, his sexuality, am I or am I not gay, his parents just horrified by the prospect. They actually took him to have electroshock therapy when he was 17. Uh, This kid was looking to get out of his home of Long Island for a long time, and what he said later on was really poignant. The music is all. People should die for it. People are dying for everything else, so why not for the music? It saves more lives. Well, people think of him as so cynical and the godfather of punk and sneering mm-hmm. at everything. But think about the earnestness of what of what he just said. You know, I mean, you don't hear Bono saying people should die for the music. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, he took it extremely seriously, and you can hear the love in a track like I Found a Reason, where his love of those old soul and doo-wop records really comes through, even with that spoken word interlude mm-hmm. that he does in the middle. It sounds just like an Ink Spots or a Platters record, the kind of music that he used to listen to as a kid. Honey, I found a reason to keep living. And you know the reason Dear, it's you And I've walked down life's lonely highways Hand in hand with myself And I realize How many paths have crossed between us It is a bright-sounding Velvet Underground record. It is the most enduring record in some ways because of its accessibility. I think the first three records were way more important in terms of setting the ground rules for a new kind of music that would push forward for generations. But in terms of, like, which Velvet record should you hear first as sort of an introduction to the band? If you had you never heard of the Velvets or Lou Reed, I would always point them to Loaded as the place to get into the band. We're going to continue our remembrance of Lou Reed, rocker, poet, and founder of the Velvet Underground, in a minute here on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later, we review a new release from another rabble-rouser, M.I.A. Oh, 
Way across USA, plucked her eyebrows on the way, shaved her legs, and then he was a she. She says, Hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. Said, Hey, honey, take a walk on the wild side. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and we are looking at the musical legacy of Lou Reed, who died at the age of 71. We've decided to pick five albums and talk about what each of them accomplished musically. We started with the Velvet Underground's White Light, White Heat, and Loaded, and now we're going to go to the solo albums. Although, honestly, Greg, right, we could do a 25-part series on all of the albums of Lou Reed. And if anybody wants to hire us, we'll come to your house and do that. But first up of the solo albums was the concept album, that sprawling 1973 concept album, Berlin. That's the one you wanted to talk about next. Yeah, I think it was his key record from the 70s, although a lot of people would say, well, the one that came right before it, Transformer, was the one. That's the one that produced Walk on the Wild Side. If people know... Exactly. If people know Lou Reed from one song, it is that one. It was produced by his new pal, David Bowie. It sort of turned Lou Reed into the poster child of this glam rock movement. But for me, that record was was sort of a gimmick. It had great songs on it, but the, the production was kind of gimmicky. I think where he really nailed it was with Berlin, the record that followed it. The context for this record was that Lou Reed was married at the time. That marriage was disintegrating. It was not pretty. So he started writing these songs about these two characters and about their marriage breaking down. The setting was Berlin, in part because he was a huge fan of Brecht and Weil, those great German cabaret writers from the Weimar Republic era. And then also the notion of Berlin as the divided city sort of appealed to him as symbolic of what was happening in this marriage. Now, for a producer, he reached out to this young 23-year-old guy out of Toronto named Bob Ezrin, who was working or had been working at the time with Alice Cooper. Now, now Lou Reed hated Alice Cooper because <laughs> he said, this guy has ripped off everything I've ever done, and he's taken it all the way to the bank. But he loved the production on those records. Ezrin, of course, went on to huge fame years later by producing Pink Floyd's The Wall. He hears some of these songs that Lou is working on. He's a big picture guy. He's, he's thinking about concepts. And he says, you've not just written a bunch of songs here, but we could make a film for the ear, as he said, out of this album. In Berlin By the wall 
Jack Bruce from Cream on bass and Stevie Winwood on keyboards and these two guitar players from uh, Detroit, Steve Hunter and Dick Wagner, Ainsley Dunbar on drums. Both Ezrin and Reed go deep into this concept. They are going to pull out all the stops, make this kind of a rock opera. The pain in the music is matched by the psychic pain in the studio of perfecting this beast of a record. Both guys are just not sleeping. They're taking drugs. There's a lot of arguing. We interviewed Bob Ezrin a few years ago about the making of Berlin, and here's what he had to say. It was a torture fest. It it was just incredibly intense. First of all, look at the material. It seems a little pale now after all the stuff we've been exposed to in in the last four decades. But uh, for the time, it was pretty raw stuff. But she's not afraid to die. All of her friends call her Alaska. When she takes speed, they laugh and ask her what is in her mind. What is in mind? Talking about drug addicts and speed and waking up shaking after being in a, you know in a sort of sp- on a speed binge for five days and stuff like that. People weren't talking about that sort of stuff. Lou was talking about that sort of stuff, and it was you know about spousal abuse and suicide. I mean, all the kind of zany madcap themes of life. And we were in London. It was the fall. So it was rainy and dark. It was back in the days when drugs were good and sex would not kill you. <laughs> so there was a lot of that afoot. And, and there, was some, there were some tensions in the room uh, between some of the players, between Lou and less between Lou and me than just between Lou and life. He was going through some stuff at that time in his marriage. And I think that all of that's pretty well documented. Anyway, it was difficult, but it was still thrilling. Mm-hmm. It may have been difficult, but there were moments where everybody just looked at each other in awe when they would play stuff. I mean, much of that record was, was certainly the the rhythm tracks were cut live. Mm. Everybody in the room, you know, wow, what a concept. In- Nobody does incredible that Incredible band, but, too. Oh, what a band. And there were, there were sometimes like the jam on the end of O Jim. And, you know, it's just stuff coming out of these people that I had never heard played before. They were, you know, making love musically on the ends of some of these songs. But, Jimmy, here's something that we've talked about for years, decades, about the making of this record. I think it's the number one thing people wonder about with regard to the making of Berlin, and that's the song Kids. Mm. You know, that's the song where the woman named Carolyn, who's having her children taken away, and you hear these terrible, heart-wrenching cries. So here's Bob Ezrin again giving the backstory of using his own kids in this recording. So at that stage, David was already five and a half and smart beyond his years, and Joshua was one and a half. 
two things happened. They, these, these were recorded at separate times. The really mournful, just, oh, my God, you want to just kill yourself cry, is comes after the following words. Joshua, bed. <laughs> Joshua hated to go to bed. One night I brought a Nagra into the house and held the microphone over him and went, Joshua, bed. <laughs> and and I captured that moment forever. Oh, wow. So then the other one, the other bit, which is the pounding on the door and the yelling for mommy, I said to David, look, I'm doing this little little piece. It's about a little boy. I didn't want to tell him that she was you know, having her children taken away. That's not something you want to tell a five-year-old. But I was saying, it's a little boy, and he's trying to get in the house, and his mommy's inside, and she can't hear him. So I want you to pound on the door and yell, Mommy, as loud as you can. So he's pounding on the door yelling, Mommy, Mommy, and Joshua comes running down. So he gets into the act and goes, Mommy, Mommy, and starts yelling too, and the two of them pound on the door. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and we are looking at the long musical career of Lou Reed. The next solo record that we want to look at is The Blue Mask from 1982. Lou Reed often has been called the godfather of punk, and he was hanging around the CBGB scene starting in 76, 77, 78. He was kind of a mess in those years, though, drug and alcohol addicted, and then he began to clean up. Two things happened. He he would eventually marry Sylvia Morales, who would, would be his wife and his manager, and he went to AA, and, and he wrote about this, so it's not betrayed anything, uh, he began to clean up, realize, it, you know, he was hitting bottom, and it was a long process. It took him a couple of years. And I think he came to terms with A, cleaning up, B, being in love, like for the first time in his life with a relationship that he was happy to come home and have a wife, right? And C, with punk rock, all of that comes to terms with on um, The Blue Mask, comes out in 1982. I think we both agree on this. The best band he had after the Kale Velvet Underground was this combo that begins to tour behind the Blue Mask. Robert Quine plays guitar with him, and Quine had been in Richard Hell and the Voidoids, just a, an incredible, noisy, but jazz-inspired guitarist who, as a kid, would travel around America with a reel-to-reel tape recorder mm, and yeah. tape the Velvet Underground playing live. This was his ultimate band. These were his heroes, and now he was invited to join the band after making his mark on punk with Blank Generation, the Voidoids album. Fernando Saunders, a jazz bassist, able to play complex melody lines on the bass. And although Doanne Perry, a session musician who later wound up in Jethro Tull, plays drums on the Blue Mask, I always think of it as the Fred Mars album. Fred was a young musician, a drummer, part of the underground New York 
avant-garde scene in the early 80s, and he plays live all the Blue Mask material. I'll never forget, Greg. I'm in NYU at this point, going to school with a buddy of mine. We were the world's biggest Lou Reed fans, and we hear he's going to play The Bottom Line, a really intimate club in New York's village. We stood online for five hours, Hmm. and we got into the club, and we saw Robert Quine, Fernando Saunders, Fred Marr, and Lou Reed play almost everything from the Blue Mask, these incredibly emotional songs about grappling with alcoholism underneath the bottle. Things are never good, things go from bad to weird. Hey, give me another scotch with my beer. I'm sad to say I feel the same today as I always do. Give me a drink to relax me. And then very personal songs. He's singing The Day John Kennedy Died, reminiscing where he was at Syracuse University when he heard that Kennedy was dead, and also My House and Women. Him singing almost in comical terms, except you know that he was not fooling around about how nice it is to come home at the end of the day and have somebody (laughs) you love, right? And to have my own house. And it's so cool in his house that Sylvia has made a home for him that the poet Delmore Schwartz, who was his mentor when he was at Syracuse University, Delmore is long dead, but the ghost of Delmore Schwartz comes to visit him in his house, right? My friend and teacher occupies a spare room He's dead at peace at last, the wandering Jew Other friends had put stones on his grave He was the first great man that I had ever met What a wacky album, but it's beautiful, and it all builds to this ultimate love song, one of the best he ever wrote, called Heavenly Arms. Now, live, when this band would play this stuff, like I said, Fred Marr on drums, Robert Quine on guitar, you know, Reed would get this look on his face. I will never forget it. And whether they were covering a Velvet song or one of these Blue Mask tunes, Reed would decide it's time for some noise and chaos, just as he used to turn to Kale, and he would just turn to stage left, and he'd go... Quine! And then Quine would let out the worst guitar solo, man. Worst in the best way. Just the best noise you've ever heard in your life. My God. I love the Blue Mask, and I know you did too. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis. We're looking at the long-storied musical career of Lou Reed, who died recently at the age of 71. We're up to the New York album from 1989, which I think nicely sets up the latter part of his career, the, the basically the last 20 years. You can see Lou entering the, the wordy 
phase of his existence here as an artist, becoming much more self-conscious about the fact that he is becoming a literary figure. Up there with his heroes, the people that he had read and that had inspired him as an English student at Syracuse University. He begins to have a music stand on yeah. stage, like a lectern, with mm-hmm. his lyrics and the little light on them, and that's that stays with him through the rest of his career. Now, one thing that uh, Lou told me, I interviewed him a number of times around this time, and I asked him, why are you sort of diving into these deeper, longer, more conceptual works And one of the reasons he said was that I'm just clear-headed. I said, the fact that I was on binging on drugs and alcohol for a good part of my early career really caused huge lapses of concentration. So he was down to writing individual songs. Now I can think bigger picture. I can think more conceptually. He would go on and on talking about his word processor. Because I can write and I can rewrite. That had good good points and bad points. Well, yeah, I remember an interview I did with him, Circa Magic and Loss, where he was talking about how much uh, he loved the way Garrison Keillor talked about writing. And you think, you know, think about that for a minute. The godfather of punk, the dark prince of rock and roll of all time, was talking about Garrison Keillor? Right. He was expanding. You know, he's becoming (laughs) a man of the people. You know, as a result of this new clarity, he went on this huge writing binge. 1987-88, among the songs he wrote were basically all of the song, what would become the Songs for Drella album mm-hmm. that he would do with John Cale in 1980, basically a series of songs about his relationship with the late Andy Warhol, who uh, was the, the benefactor, the, the, the guy who, who got the Velvet Underground off of the club stages and into a wider public view with his clout behind them. You've got connections, and I've got the art. You like attention, and I like your looks. And I have the style it takes. And you know the people it takes. So Songs for Drella with Reed and Kale collaborating for the first time in years was a huge album in 1990. And the other album that came out during this period was the New York album, which which he wrote a song cycle about a subject he knows very, very well. And I think this is one of the high points of his career. I think there were other albums that he made after this, but none better than New York in 89. Collaboration with Mike Rathke on guitar. Rathke he knew very well because he was married to the sister of his then-wife, Sylvia. He trusted Rathke, and Rathke brought out the best in Reed as a guitar player. Reed's Guitar solos are all over this record. It's a very stripped-down, minimal record, much in the vein of the Blue Mask, you know, just taking a a small group of musicians, two guitars, bass, and drums. That was the vocabulary. But the words way up front, you know, hyper-wordy songs, but good, pointed songs, politically charged songs. Reed talking about AIDS, about pollution, about the whole idea that America was the land of opportunity, or it once was, but now everybody's not welcome here. And the land of opportunity is sort of sinking into the Hudson. Pedro lives out of the Wilshire Hotel. He looks out a window without glass. The walls are made of cardboard. Newspapers on his feet, and his father beats him because he's too tired to beg. He's got nine brothers and sisters. They're brought up on their knees. It's hard to run when a coat hanger beats you on the thighs. Pedro dreams of being older. And killing the old man, but that's a slim chance. He's going to the boulevard. He's gonna end up on the dirty boulevard. He's going out to 
also with a wicked sense of humor, which he didn't always bring to some of these more self-consciously Lou Reed moments later on in his career. There was a wicked, wicked element of satire and humor in this record as well. So when you think about songs like Dirty Boulevard or, or Romeo Had Juliet, you know, balancing the poignance with the just the grit and the street earthiness that we, we had come to expect from Lou Reed, and then something as tender and tragic as Halloween Parade, what which I song. think is one of the great things he's ever written. What a song. What a song. You know, it's about watching the famous Halloween Parade through Greenwich Village, which is his stomping ground, and noticing all the faces that are missing mm-hmm. that have been lost to AIDS. It's just a heartbreaking song. There's a Greta Garbo and an Alfred Hitchcock and some black Jamaican stud. There's five Cinderella's and some leather drags. I almost fell into my mug. There's a Crawford Davis and a tacky Cary Grant And some homeboys looking for trouble down here from the Bronx But there ain't no Harry and no Virgin Mary You won't hear those voices again And Johnny Rio and Rotten Rita You never see those faces again This Halloween is something to be sure to be here without you. I was talking about Fred Marr, the drummer, having come on to tour behind the Blue Mask. He stayed and he played on the album Legendary Hearts and New Sensations and Live in Italy. And then it comes time to make New York in 1988. It's released the next year in 89, and he winds up producing this album. So he called me out of the blue and said... You know, would I play drums on on New York? And I said, uh, or what would become New York? And I said, sure, I'd love to. You know, and then he started asking me, you know, the young guy, like, well, who's good? What producers are cool? And you know, I rattled off the usual list of names, and people, I guess, people weren't interested in Lou at that point. And me, of course, being you know twenty something you know, full of beans, full of too much confidence, um, <laughs> probably said, well, Lou, I'll. How about me? I'll produce the record. And he says to me, what do you know about recording guitars? All you do is that synth pop crap, you know? And uh, I said, well, let's just get one day in the studio. And he did, and we we went in. I didn't even hire an engineer. I just did it myself. That's how audacious I was at the time. I, you know, overconfident. And we actually recorded the opening song on New York, Romeo Had Juliet. Mm -hmm. And he called me the next day and said, Fred, it's Lou. Hey, how you doing? I sound like Lou Reed again for the first time in however many years. <laughs> he said like 15 <laughs> years. He said, let's do this. So, wow. And the interesting thing is that when we... I, I'm not sure how much time passed between the initial recording, that first recording, and when we actually went in to start the, the full album. But... What we did that day, including the rough mix, is what is on the record. We never went back to it. We never changed anything. We never remixed it. He just loved it exactly the way it was. Caught between the twisted stars, the plotted lines, the faulty map that brought Columbus to New York. Betwixt between the east and west, he calls on her wearing a leather vest. The earth squeals and shudders to a halt. A diamond crucifix in his ear is used to help word off the fear that he has left his soul in someone's rented car. Inside his pants he hides a mop to clean the mess that he has dropped into the light of lightsome Juliet Bell. And Romeo wanted Juliet. 
The making of that record was shockingly easy. I had sort of psychologically prepared myself for, not because I had ever had any problems with Lou. I was a, a basically a bystander, you know, on on the other recordings, and kind of strangely, actually uniquely qualified to to be his producer because I had watched other engineers and producers try to make, quote, hits with Lou and sort of bring him, you know, make him try to sing, you know, sing Lou, sing. sing. Lou doesn't sing. He's Lou. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) but I knew that I was heading into uh, this was the new territory. You know, I was going to be in studio with Lou long days for a long time. And I psychologically prepared myself for like seven round trip flights to Australia. Like just thought, (laughs) okay, this is going to be this is going to be brutal. And it wasn't. I, it was magical, and he was in really good form. He was very comfortable, really sharp wit, that guy. I mean, he was just, he was hilarious. Uh, and, and I know a lot of people probably find that hard to believe, but <laughs> when he was relaxed and doing what he loved, and he just loved being in the studio, loved playing guitar, getting guitar tones, couldn't give a damn about all the knobs and wires and bits and consoles, didn't really care about that, just trusted me to, to handle all that stuff. So, Fred, uh, Lou was sober around then, 88, 89. What kind of shape was he in? Yeah, uh, he was in great shape. He was he was very funny about the alcohol stuff. He would, I remember him holding up a big bottle of Evian as he was about to record a, a, a vocal and go, Mmm, vodka. And chug it. And did he clue you in on the story before you started work? Not really. I just, as a producer, of course, I was looking for you know uh, how to voice each song there was in fact there was the one song endless cycle has a just a metronome that was my dad's wow and it was in an odd meter and i thought well this doesn't really need anything this just needs and since it was about time passing i believe there were some lyrics in it about the passing of time and how violence or abuse moves from generation to generation. The bias of the father runs on through the son Leaving him bothered and bewildered The drugs in his veins only cause him to spit At the face staring back in the mirror How can he tell the good act from the bad He can't even remember his name How can he do what needs to be done when he's a follower and not a leader? That's Endless Cycle by Lou Reed from the New York album produced by Fred Marr. You know, Greg, I feel like we only scratched the surface. We'll put some links to some of our writing about Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground up on the Sound Opinions website. And I'm interested to hear what the listeners at home think. You know, how much did Lou Reed and the Velvets mean to you in your life? Give us a call. 888-859-1800. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, we've got a new album to review, the latest from MIA. Leaving her running in circles How can she tell a good act from the bad When she's flat on her back in her room How can she do what needs to be done 
She's a coward and a bleeder. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that's a song called Yala, Y-A-L-A, by M.I.A. from her new album, Matangi. Greg, that is Yala as in you always live again versus, as the kids say, you only live once, YOLO. MIA is reaching to her roots in Eastern spiritualism on this record. She burst out of London in the mid-2000s, but she was raised in Sri Lanka and also spent some time in India. A real big surprise hit from her first album in 2005, Are You Lar, with that song Paper Planes. She had been ushered onto the scene originally as a visual artist working with Elastica, providing photography and graphics for the group's second album, touring with them, and being introduced to the joys of the Roland MC505 drum machine by Peaches. Her career has been building ever since to the point where she was big enough in 2012 to perform with Madonna and Nicki Minaj at the Super Bowl, of all things. But she got into some trouble. We talked about that in the news. She flashed the middle digit in a sign of her rebellious nature and wound up being sued for one and a half million dollars for tarnishing the family image of the NFL. Why do I mention this? Because MIA does enjoy courting a sort of public notoriety. I think after Kanye West, it's harder to parse her art from her public outrage than it is with any other artist, arguably. This album features contributions from, of all people, Julian Assange of WikiLeaks and also Abel Tesfe of The Weeknd. But the main producer is Switch, who has worked with MIA for a long time, and they've done good things together. Let's listen to a track here, and then we'll give our opinions about this album. This is called Lights by MIA from Matangi on Sound Opinions.
Lights from the new MIA album Matangi, her fourth studio album. Very difficult history behind this album. It's been in the making for two or three years. Her label apparently thinking it wasn't political enough for MIA to put out because she's been noted for stirring up this controversy, as you said, Jim. And her whole thing on this record, well, yes, it's my spiritual record, but it seems very superficial on a spiritual level. You know, she's talking about reincarnation and karma and things like this, but Carmageddon? Come yeah. on, you know? <laughs> Pun type of superficial treatment of these deep spiritual issues. I, I think just in terms of the song titles alone, you might want to dismiss this record thinking it is kind of a pop trifle. But I have to say, I like when MIA does mix it up in the pop music mainstream. There's one song on the record where she's complaining that people are ripping her off in the pop mainstream. I say, I wish more people were ripping her off. She brings an element to her music that is unlike anything else that the Katy Perry's and the Lady Gaga's of the world are delivering. The politics and social consciousness is in the music. And you mentioned Dave Taylor, a.k.a. Switch, that producer. He wasn't a big part of the Maya album in 2010, and I think that album suffered because of it. Now he's playing a much bigger role once again, and it's bringing her back to those two high points in her career, Arular and Kala, her first two albums, which I think were just brilliant. Unfortunately, I don't think this record is quite up to the par of her first two records, but it's a very solid return to form after the letdown of Maya in 2010. I give Matangi a burn it. I'll agree with your burn it, Greg. It's not a masterpiece. The first album absolutely was. And again, she's being overshadowed almost by the public antics. We should put that out of our heads when we listen to this music. It's a really enjoyable record in terms of slightly more introspective and, yes, spiritual grooves. I love what she's doing, bringing dancehall sounds and dub rhythms and other Western dance sounds into this mix of the Eastern drones. And, yeah, she doesn't have a heck of a lot to say other than that she's a spiritual person. But, uh, you know, she says it with a lot of humor, and when she tosses out some of these one-liners, they're pretty darn funny. But the grooves rule the day, hence my burn it. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to play a bunch of great songs about the music business. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Jason Saldana, Anthony Martinez, and our intern is Jake Smith. One final note on the way out. You and I both have already reserved our tuxedos to comply with Arcade Fire's request that formal attire be worn for shows on their new tour. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hey, Jim and Greg, it's Tanya from Fort Collins, Colorado, and I just listened to the turkey shoe, and I've got to say, I have been waiting for months for you guys to talk about the tear, and wow, this album is the most depressing thing I think I've ever seen. 
I mean, I've been losing faith in Wayne for a long time now, but I just felt like Droz might be able to bring a level of like integrity and authenticity to this album that just would save it from being a train wreck, but I don't know. It's just one of the saddest things for such an important band. Anyway, guys, love the show. This is Matt. I'm calling to say that my turkey of the year was Nothing Was the Same by Drake. So what are you? A whole bunch of tracks of him just whining and complaining about girlfriends and the stuff like that, and I just thought it was a huge disappointment. All right, thanks. Uh, thinking about Texas back when Porsche used to work at Treasures. Or further back than that, before I had the Houston leverage. When I got summer on Michael Kors with my mama's debit. A week of temper flexing, I'll never forget it. Cause that night I played her three songs. Then we got to talking about something we disagreed on. Then she started telling me how I'd never be as big as Trey songs. Boy, was she wrong? That was just negative energy for me to feed off. Now it's therapeutic, blowing money. Sandra Hugas from Southern Iowa. And I'm calling about the music sources that list lyrics being given takedown notices. I was trying to find the words to Too Old to Cut the Mustard, which my mother used to sing off-key around the house. It was Marlena Dietrich and Rosemary Clooney. I had to type the whole first line before it brought up a hit that matched. I found that line in a sermon. The Whoever wrote the sermon quoted the entire song, and using that, I got to the right YouTube piece. Last night I kissed a millionaire, ran my fingers through his hair. The whole thing turned out pretty grim because none of his hair belonged to him. Thank you. Bye-bye. My name's Bill Mitchell. I'm in Tampa, Florida. I'm a wedding DJ calling in regards to lyrics online. I do use several different preferred websites for finding lyrics, which is an absolute must in my business because as a wedding DJ, I have to know what's being said in the songs, and I'm often playing in venues where I'm not allowed to play explicit lyrics. If it's not a song that I'm immediately familiar with, I do have to rely on the online sites to determine what the lyrics are. You take this woman to be your lawful wedding wife, to love and to cherish, in sickness and in health, to death do you part. I do. I would be lost without some of those lyric websites when it comes to songs with explicit content. Thank you.
no more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. I can't see that